Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. He was losing himself. Once he'd been able to look back over the 60s, 70s, and 80s like a man looking down a double flight of stairs leading into a darkened room. Now he could only clearly remember the events since the superflu. Beyond that, there was nothing but a haze that would sometimes lift a tiny bit, just enough to afford a glimpse of some enigmatic object or memory. Boo Dinkway, for instance, if there had ever been such a person, before closing down again. The earliest memory he could now be sure of was walking south on US-51, heading toward Mountain County and the home of Kit Bradenton, of being born, born again. He was no longer strictly a man if he had ever been one. He was like an onion, slowly peeling away one layer at a time, only it was the trappings of humanity that seemed to be peeling away, organized reflection, memory, possibly even free will, if there ever had been such a thing. He began to eat the rabbit. Once, he was quite sure, he would have done a quick fade when things began to get flaky. Not this time. This was his place, his time, and he would take his stand here. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and welcome to part five of my six-part review of Stephen King's The Stand. And thus comes book three, originally titled The Stand. This last act of the novel takes place from September 7th through January 10th the following year. That said, the most important part of Book 3 and the bulk of its pages are done by October 2nd, and the last three months are the novel's extended closing after the climax of the novel. In Book 3, King continues the narrowing of his characters on the bottom half of that diamond-shaped story structure. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, anyone left behind in Boulder is simply forgotten. When the four men walk west, the book goes with them. There's no chapters in Boulder during their journey. King leaves the free zone and doesn't really look back. Very quickly, the story does away with two of the three spies that had been sent to Boulder, Judge Ferris and Dana Jurgens. With this all-seeing eye, Flagg knew they were coming, and soon they were both captured and killed. Additionally, most of this is shown to us not only through the point of view of the hero spies, but from Flagg and his people. Indeed, King focuses this third book primarily on Las Vegas and the regime Flagg had established. Finally, we get chapters with Lloyd and Flagg, Characters largely missing for the bulk of Book 2 and sorely missed. For Book 3, these are our primary focus characters. But there's trouble in Flag's Paradise, and it begins with the death of the spies. As I mentioned previously, with Flag and company absent from Book 2, it was easy to imagine a Las Vegas where Flag was happy with the people he commanded and bore no ill will to the people of Boulder. Yet early on in Book 3, we're shown that Glenn Bateman's worst fears were on the mark. Flagg was using Trash Can Man to build up an air force that could be used to destroy Boulder and kill all its residents. It turns out, Trash isn't just a firebug, he's an idiot savant when it comes to weapons. While Flagg's men are flummoxed at the high-tech weaponry at the military base near Vegas, Trash can just instinctively figure out how to arm missiles and set up engines of destruction. More, he can just drive out in the desert and find military stockpiles. Again, perhaps he has a bit of a psychic bent that allows him to intuit the location and functionality of these weapons, but without him, Flag would have no military might. Trash may not be able to fly the planes, but he can arm them, which is exactly what Flag needs him to do. And Flag wants to send a message to the people of Boulder. He orders the spies be killed, but no damage is to come to their heads. Flag, like the conquerors of old, 
wanted to send back the decapitated heads of the spies so all in the free zone would fear him. Yet, through happenstance and incompetence, both spies die with their faces virtually unrecognizable, revealing a chink in Flag's armor. The first of many. The second flaw is that Flag cannot see the third spy. When he reaches out to see, all he gets is M-O-O-N. That spells moon. Apparently, Flag's powers leave him blind to those with abnormal brain function. This is a sudden change in the novel. For two books, we've been led to believe that Flag is this book's Sauron, that if he's not as powerful as the devil himself, he's pretty damn close. He is organizing in Las Vegas, preparing to destroy the remaining people who refuse to obey him. This, folks, was prime evil for the first three quarters of the pages in this novel. But suddenly in book three, we discover Flag's regime is falling and through no effort of the people of Boulder. Flag rules through fear, and it seems people are starting to fear him less. Though the lackey who shot Judge Ferris in the face suffered a painful death, Flag's minions are realizing there's a limit to the demon's powers. People are leaving Vegas to go to places they hope Flag cannot reach, including Mexico and further south. Even Flag's inner circle is starting to desert. Flag had an inner council of people all as poorly defined as the residents of Boulder. People with names like Barry Dorgan, Whitney Horgan, and someone just called the Rat Man who dresses like a pirate. They all decide to abandon ship and try to take Lloyd with them. This is where, to me, that character of Lloyd pays off. Lloyd was a hanger-on when the book started, ready to desert anyone or anything for the next job that would get him something. Lloyd sees what the others see, and he doesn't stop them from leaving, but he also doesn't join them. He partially stays because he's second only to Flag in Vegas, and knows he wouldn't hold such authority elsewhere. As the saying goes, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. But more, Flag made something of Lloyd. The goon felt smarter for the work he'd done, and he knew that without Flag, he'd have starved to death in that prison cell. There may be no honor among thieves, but I like that Lloyd intentionally stands by Flag, even though it appears his kingdom is falling. This is part of what really makes Lloyd appeal to me as one of the characters in this novel, and while his arc is short, it's still one of the ones that impacts me most. He's the captain's first mate, and he still chooses to stay on the ship as it sinks. But honestly, I have no idea why it's sinking. Tom Cullen, the third spy, did make it into Las Vegas, and the average folks there have it pretty good. Not only did Flag's people get the lights back on, but schools have been established. Parents don't have to worry about their children not learning properly. The penalty for crime is crucifixion, so there's not really a big problem with people breaking the law. Tom observes, quote, The people were mostly nice, and some of them he liked every bit as well as the people in Boulder, folks like Angie and that little boy Dinny. No one made fun of him because he was slow. They'd given him a job and joked with him, and on lunch break they'd trade out of their dinner buckets for something out of someone else's that looked better. They were nice folks. Not much different from Boulder folks, as far as he could tell, but... But they had that smell about them. They all seemed to be waiting and watching. Sometimes strange silences fell among them, and their eyes seemed to glaze over, as if they were all having the same uneasy dream. They did things without asking for explanations of why they were doing them, or what it was for. It was as if these people were wearing happy folks' faces, but their real faces, their underneath faces, were monster faces. End quote. Yes, admittedly some of the people in Vegas are evil, but if Simple Tom likes them so much as his friends in Boulder, they certainly can't all be horrible people under the skin, right? Yet they are fearful of their city's master, and once he's revealed to be even slightly weak that he can't find the third spy he knows was sent, his regime begins to crumble. His military might have soon taken from him as well. Just as Flag can't see into Tom Cullen's addled mind, 
he also can't read the thoughts of the insane trash can man. And so when the pyromaniac decides to set off the bombs he's built at the Air Force Base, Flag is left with few planes and no pilots. Trash Can Man proved to be a bigger enemy to Flag than anyone in Boulder. So with a crumbling regime and no weapons to attack the people with, Flag's only remaining hope for a successful plot is the birth of his heir, and that goes poorly too. Nadine does escape Boulder with Harold, but on the ride to Vegas, Harold is betrayed. Flag arranges an accident for Harold's motorcycle, and Nadine leaves the teen in the bottom of a cliff with a compound broken leg. In that ravine, Harold becomes another character scratched off the list as he writes a whiny final journal entry where he claims he was deceived, and then eats a bullet. With her almost lover dead, Nadine goes to her demon betrothed, and finally her virginity is lost and she is with Devil Child. Yet seeing Flag's true demonic face in the throes of ecstasy snap the woman's brain. Nadine loses her mind, thus she tricks her new husband into killing her and his child by demeaning him until he throws her off a roof. Literally. And when he does that, all of a sudden to me, this once omnipotent, omniscient evil is shown to be pretty friggin' stupid. His whole point was to rule and to birth an heir, and he was so easily fooled into killing both wife and child? So if Flag is losing everything he has, why again do the four good men need to walk from Boulder? It seems Flag's doing a good enough job of undermining himself without any assistance from God or Larry. King described this in an interview where he said, quote, I think of evil as being very powerful, but ultimately stupid. I tend to see the good as powerful in a more subtle way, and ultimately the force that has all the variation and the real excitement. Evil has a superficial excitement, but underneath it all, it's dull and monotonous. And that's where the real Terra is. As Joseph Conrad said, the only horror is that there is no horror. And that's what I see as the basis of it. End quote. With this attitude depicted, Book 3 actually becomes a vast disappointment to me. Flag is undone on his own, with little to no acts by our heroes. I'll forgive this biblical allegory a lot of storytelling conveniences. Desex Machina, Visions and Dreams, I'm fine with those. But any good story needs active protagonists. The way King wrote it, the story doesn't have them at all. Flag's regime is unraveling on its own. Now I'm not the first person to levy this criticism of King's opus. This seems to be one of the most common reader complaints since The Stand was first released in 1978, yet King stands by this decision. He's explained it in many interviews over the past 35 years, saying that he believes evil ultimately does undo itself. In one interview he said, quote, A lot of people were disappointed in The Stand because Randall Flagg kind of peters away to nothing, but to me, the ultimate thing about evil is that it leads nowhere. I believe with truly evil people, the evil leaps into them from somewhere outside, like Charlie Starkweather or Charlie Whitman, the guy who went up in that Texas tower and shot all those people. At the end of it, they either kill themselves, or when you get a hold of them, there's just nothing left. Those who support the death penalty want to put these people to death in the electric chair without realizing the thing they really want to kill is gone. End quote. Likewise, in a different interview, King said, quote, The thing that impresses over and over again is these people are really stupid, and that something goes into them, whether it's the devil or Satan or whatever it is. It goes into them, and then these people get caught, and the thing flies away, and you have someone who says, Well, I don't know what I did. Geez, I don't know. Did you do it? Yeah, I did it. But why did you do it? I don't know. I don't know why I did it. Because they don't, see? Something got into them. It's like Lyndon Johnson when he was running the war in Vietnam. That man was possessed of the devil. Satan was in that man, and then he came on TV and said, I'm not running for re-election. 
It was in 68, and I saw the devil go out of that man, and he just turned into this old guy. Somebody interviewed him shortly before he died. She said something like, Lyndon, why did you do that? You knew you couldn't win cover there without using nuclear weapons. And he was there. He had his gallbladder out and was dying of congestive heart failure or something. He had the sheet pulled up to his chin, and she said, why did you do that? He said, I don't know. Just like that, because it was out of him. See, it gets into you. And that's what's in Randall Flagg towards the end of the stand. It leaves him. Whatever it is, it's leaving him, a little at a time, and he's just nobody. End quote. This even goes down to the reason that Flagg was in Vegas. King said, quote, I expected to really get killed on that in the reviews. It's been identified in the American mind, hyped in the American mind, as Sin City. So I thought, I'll put it here. It's overblown, but what the fuck? Everything in the book is overblown, so I might as well. I was in Las Vegas when I originally got the idea to set that part of the book there. I went back several times to make sure I had it right. Vegas is very... Using Vegas at the end of the book reinforces the idea that evil is banal and ultimately anti-creative. Evil has no power of its own, you know, except for the power people give it. Vegas is an extremely banal place. End quote. The final quote I'll share of many that really sums up how King wanted to portray Flagg during this third book of The Stand is, quote, the image I had of Flag was of a gigantic evil that will begin to deflate by the end of the book, which is not such an exciting concept. I just hoped the good characters would carry readers over that. Really, I think that if in the end I could have made him into a sort of cringing salesman, a guy who's going bald and wearing red pants and white shoes, I would have done it. But I didn't quite have the balls to do it. End quote. So, King's political views aside, there it is, plain and simple. It's not bad writing that's making Flag appear weak. When King wrote a character that comprised all he considered evil, this downfall came with it. But, my lord, what a horrible attitude in general. King participated in anti-war marches in the 60s, but with this type of description, it seems like he thinks that was all a waste of time and energy. To take the opinion he's said in those quotes to its most extreme, this philosophy could be summed up as, all it takes for evil to fail is for good people to do nothing. If evil is self-defeating, why not just sit back, drink your paps, and wait for the shit to blow over? No, these evil people King references were deflated because they were opposed. People stood against them and they gave up. Now, I love the concept King floats that evil goes into them, energizes them, and then leaves them. There are some politicians from this century I can certainly see that about, and I can't wait to see them after the evil has fled. But I'd like to think the power of good is what causes their eventual defeat, and that evil moves on to someplace else who can perform more evil acts versus this impotent aging vessel. Apart from the worldview King has, I also think that, my lord, what a letdown for a novel. In book one, Flag was the ultimate evil. He could walk forever, he had no face, and was that glowing evil eye that could see all. I wondered how any man or group of men could possibly defeat this ageless walking dude. And that makes for good adventures. Back to Lucas's description of a three-act structure. You want to see good people in a situation they can't win, and then you want to see them win it. When book three started, I wanted Ralph, Stu, Larry, and Glenn to go and see Flag at the height of his power and find a way to dethrone him. Is that the most original storytelling? No, of course it's not. It's the end of every action and adventure story. Good fights evil, good looks like it can't win, and then good does win. King's method of doing it? Well, I'll give it a point for originality. But there's a reason that all stories aren't told this way. It's anticlimactic. 
Imagine if at the end of Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam finally made it to Mount Doom, having suffered the trials they did along the entire way, but when they got there, they found Sauron's army was in disarray. After the defeat in Helm's Deep, the orcs' morale was at an all-time low. The generals, hell, even the ringwraiths were deserting the Dark Lord. Would it then be that important if Frodo throws that ring back into the fires from whence it was forged? No. Frodo could keep and fondle that ring for 500 years and all Sauron would be able to do is watch. So while Flag has killed Harold and Nadine and most of Flag's inner circle heads to foreign countries, our heroes walk and walk and walk. I did Google map this, and to walk from Boulder, Colorado to Las Vegas, Nevada by the shortest possible route is 814 miles, which is 268 hours at an average walking pace. Yet, I enjoy the character's journey. Glenn lets the reader know that this walk through the desert is akin to the tribal rituals since the dawn of man. Be it Native American or Biblical stories, men would often have to go out in the desert and go without food and shelter in service of a higher power. Evil has never been weaker in The Stand than in Book 3, but good has never been stronger. Gone is all the politicking and the bureaucracy. These are four men on a mission of faith, even if it's not a faith they necessarily share. Because I'm not particularly attached to Ralph, part of me wishes he'd been killed and Nick had come along on this journey. Or really, I wish Nick had replaced any of the other four. Ralph's just the least important character of the four. But Nick, being the non-believer, I wonder if he'd have gone on this journey. Would he have found a belief in God? Or would he just believe this is a necessary journey? His response to this would have been a wonderful character development. Mother Abigail said before the journey that she thought Nick would lead this mission, but now that Nick was gone, it fell to Stu. That Mother said that made me wonder if King, too, thought Nick would be the leader of the stand. But alas, we're left with these three plus Ralph. It's in this portion of the novel that King starts to draw some distinct parallels between characters on the good and bad side as well. We always saw Flag and Mother Abigail as opposites, both mystically powered beings of indeterminate age, but here in Book 3, Flag is weakened, just as Mother Abigail was weak and eventually died. Tom Cullen was a mentally challenged operative for good people that Flag could not see, as Trash is a mentally disturbed agent of evil that operates outside Flag's control. Fran is a pregnant woman who fears her child may not survive outside the womb, that it may die of the flu. Nadine becomes a pregnant woman who knows her spawn is evil and has to die. It's unfortunate that both leading ladies found their place through babies, but it is symmetrical. Lloyd comes to terms with his own place on the side of evil, choosing to stand by flag in the end. And Larry, who started this journey as no nice guy, agrees to join the other three men on a crazy long walk to Vegas, knowing full well that he may die by going. Both found their place in the world and became self-actualized. The strangest parallel, though, may be between Harold Lauder and Stu Redmond. Now, both men had loved Franny throughout the novel, but that seemed to be their only commonality. Stu was supposedly a quiet, strong man. Harold was a weak blowhard. Stu sided against Flag, and Harold eventually sided with. But in this journey, Stu and Harold share a fate. Both fall down a cliff and break their legs, and both are left by their traveling companions. Of course, Nadine has little problem leaving Harold, but Glenn, Ralph, and most especially Larry, don't want to leave Stu behind. Yet with that broken leg, Stu cannot go on, and so he orders the other three to finish their religious mission. I do like that Harold's fall helps set up Stu's likely fate. That we see Harold starving, dehydrating, and eventually forced to kill himself really drives home how dire Stu's situation is. Of course, Harold didn't have man's best friend to help out. 
Kojak chooses of his own free will to stay behind with Stu and hunts to feed the man dinner. And eventually, the remaining three men are picked up by Flag's people and driven to Vegas, where Flag intends to restore morale through their public execution. They'll be drawn and quartered. Yet, only Larry and Ralph are left for the spectacle when Flag loses his temper and has Lloyd gun down old man Glenn. And this is Lloyd's last real moment, and a shining one for me. If Larry thought of abandoning his mission when Stu fell, Lloyd has a crisis of conscience when ordered to kill the elderly sociologist. But Glenn says the obvious, that Flag is a liar, and Lloyd's response is so perfect because it's so right. Quote, He told me more truth than anyone else bothered to in my whole lousy life, Lloyd said, and shot Glenn three times. End quote. Flag may be a deceiver, but he was honest with Lloyd, if not totally forthcoming with every bit of information. This honesty is what got Lloyd's loyalty, even down to shooting an unarmed, imprisoned elderly man who appears to be no danger to anyone at all. And Glenn's final moment is also spectacular. King writes this dialogue for the dying man, quote, It's all right, Mr. Henried, he whispered. You don't know any better. End quote. And there it is, a reworking of Jesus' own line during his crucifixion. Quote, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. End quote. Glenn was spared from being nailed to the cross, but he forgives Lloyd all the same. And that's my dichotomy in book three. I dislike Flagg's downfall. I wish the heroes had more to do. But King's writing is back in top form. His use of language and character, now that he's not bogged down writing meeting minutes, it's superb and I love it. And the climax of this novel books, too. All the dragging I felt with book two is gone. From the start of book three to the climax may only be 150 pages, one-tenth of the length of the uncut edition, but for the first time since Captain Trips, King has a page-turner of a novel. Then comes the final climax. On the streets of Vegas, Flag has mandated attendance to witness the execution of Ralph and Larry, and the two men, handcuffed to be pulled apart, can do nothing. Yet they stand up for good, and they show their faith in the Lord. They continue to state they will fear no evil. Would I like them to be active characters who make something happen? Yes. But it's still okay for this novel, this biblical allegory. Jesus didn't jump down off the cross and then go beat up Pontius Pilate any more than Larry and Ralph were able to escape the chains in which Flag has put them. What happened is they put their faith in the Lord, and the way King has written it, it's not a cop-out. But what happens next may be close. For that's when the trash can man returns. Not with evil intent, but good intent. The insane man feels guilty for giving in to his firebug impulses and destroying Flag's military might, so he went in the desert to find a gift that he can present to Flag as an apology. What better gift for a crazy demonic dictator than a nuclear warhead? This was an idea King had set up in the novel since the early pages. It beguiled him, the thought that if most of the people died, then just sitting out, unguarded, would be the most destructive instruments man had ever made. I don't know if King realized the novel's climax would peak with a nuclear bomb going off, but it was certainly foreshadowed and foretold by enough characters, especially Glenn, throughout the novel. And here, nearly blind from radiation poisoning, Trash Can Man brings this weapon of mass destruction. Yet, he doesn't detonate it. That is up to God. Earlier in the scene, Flag had discharged electricity from his hands to execute a deserter. It's kind of cyclical because I read that and I thought of what the Emperor did to Luke Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi. So, the stand's original cover takes ideas from Star Wars, and then, six years later, Star Wars takes ideas from the stand. But the electricity that Flag discharged had stayed on the man. 
But when Trash Can Man enters, the electricity forms a very literal hand of God, and that hand reaches out and sets off the nuclear bomb. Not only does it kill everyone in Vegas, but because the wind was blowing west that day, any people left in Flag's other colonies in Los Angeles and elsewhere will likely die a slow death of radiation poisoning. Never, in any book I've ever read in my life, save for the Bible, have I seen such an obvious Desic Machina. For those unfamiliar with that term, and I've used it a lot this podcast in the last, it literally translates to the God Machine, and is a literary device for when God makes things happen instead of characters. Yet to have God come down and use a machine is extreme. I do see a direct biblical parallel, as I do with much of The Stand. One of the scariest stories I ever heard as a child was the tale of Sodom and Gomorrah, and how God passed judgments and ordained the city shall be consumed by fire and brimstone. Lot and his family, the only good people in the city, were given God's permission to flee, but Lot's wife turned back and witnessed God's power, and as punishment she was turned into a pillar of salt. Here, King has God passing that same judgment on Flags Vegas. What happens in Vegas is, God kills everyone. It's a make-or-break moment for the reader. You're either going to go with this concept or you don't, and your personal religious beliefs may influence that choice. Yet, it's not entirely out of line for King fiction. If you listened to my review of Salem's Lot, you heard me quote King's comment on the power of the white, which appears in that novel. In a time of danger, a holy cross glows with divine power. King returns to this power of the white often in later fiction, that the white will save those who are good and who believe in the white. It's just rare that King actually identifies this power as God. And given King's usual portrayal of religious fanatics, some fans may find this odd, but King isn't anti-God. He's just anti-religion. In one interview, he said, quote, In my own books, the power of God doesn't play a passive part at all. Call it the power of white if you prefer. Sometimes I do, although the white concept is more pagan than Christian. Good wins out over evil in Salem's Lot in The Shining, and at least earns a draw in Carrie. End quote. He continues, quote, I'm religious in terms of the white, but I don't go to church. God and the devil, the white and the black forces, proceed from the inside. That's where the power comes from. Churches make morals, which I suppose is useful. So is Tupperware, in its way, end quote. But while Salem's Lot Cross may be the white, in the context of The Stand, it's hard to make that argument. I suppose for those secular enough to demand it, they could say Mother Abigail has the shining, and as she was raised religious, then she took all her psychic insights as the word of God. Then all the other ghosts and manifestations could also be a result of everyone left alive having psychic abilities. And finally, this hand at the end could be the pagan power of white manifesting, and is only believed to be God because of the context given by Mother Abigail. Sure, that argument can be made, but I don't believe for a second that was King's intent. This is the hand of God, and you either accept that or not. For me, I choose to reject it as a storytelling device. Active characters make for better stories. Cause makes for better action. If God could literally reach down at any time and kill all the bad people, why did he wait so long? What did Flag's little ceremony accomplish? Why would God kill his most devoted followers? In some ways, King begged those questions be asked. He said in interviews that he wrestles with questions such as, quote, If there's a God, why do people die? The answer often stated, of course, is the Lord works in mysterious ways. And again, in this epic novel that is patterned after so many biblical, primarily Old Testament stories, I can see that God himself may need to make an appearance. 
but it's unfulfilling. I'd have liked the characters coming to Vegas to have actually accomplished something. King did insert in his screenplay for the miniseries, which he wrote himself, that as the hand of God appears, Mother Abigail's voice can be heard saying, The promise is fulfilled, as if God demanded the sacrifice of the committee members in order to defeat Flag. It's not great, but it's something. As it is, I think that the four men could have stayed in Boulder, had some beers, and just waited for the nukes to go off down south. If God needed a nuke, Trashy was bringing one anyway. It's not like they needed the residents of Vegas to be in a one-block radius for the atomic weapon to kill them. King said it's going to take out Flag's followers in California. So why the spectacle? Des ek machina. Worse, God kind of screws up, which seems unlike him. In both versions of this novel, Flag realizes it's time to get out of Dodge, and so his body disappears and his clothes fall to the ground. Randall Flagg escapes the bomb. That also goes to King's belief that evil can't be defeated, it can only be pushed back for a time. But if God himself is there, you think he could time things a little better. No, this final ending is just a bit cheeseball. The book needed something character-driven versus yet another literal God-given plot turn. I've given this book a lot of slack for its conveniences, but this ending disappoints me. But let me say again, while I don't like the plot twist, I do like the way King wrote it. King ended the chapter with, quote, Silent white light filled the world, and the righteous and unrighteous alike were consumed in that holy fire. End quote. But wait, there's more! With Flag defeated, Vegas obliterated, and the men who made their stand in Vegas all dead, you'd think the book is over. Which is why, when I was reading it, I'm wondering... Why is there still such a thick stack of pages left to go? I have to say, when I went back and realized this ending was only 70 pages, I was shocked. Reading it felt like 200. Every time I've ever read this novel, I think I've been so exhausted emotionally when the bomb goes off that I don't need another extended sequence of suspense. But Stu is still alive, lying in the desert, hundreds of miles away, barely safe, and able to witness the explosion. But Stu's leg is not just broken, it's now infected and he's burning up with fever. And here's where some more Desek Machina come into play, for Tom Cullen, returning to Boulder from his useless spy mission in Vegas, is visited in dreams by the ghost of Nick Andros. Why can Nick appear in dreams? Is he now an angel? Is it God or Mother Abigail appearing in Nick's form? Is King just saying screw it and allowing this entire story to have no rules anymore? I'm kind of leaning towards that last one, but the ghost of Nick leads Tom to find Stu and Kojak. Even better. From beyond the grave, Nick is able to instruct Tom on which antibiotics to give Stu to fight off the infection. Yeah, it's sorta of ludicrous, but I guess not so much as the hand of God setting off a nuke. Once you've introduced the hand of God itself, I guess you have free reign to do whatever you want. But King really prolongs Stu and Tom's return to Boulder. It takes them several months to return, and we see so much of it, and this is where Book 3 is even longer in the extended edition. We see Stu and Tom celebrate Christmas morning. We see them search for a car, and then later a snowcat with which they can navigate the mountains. And honestly, this bit drags as much as the committee meetings. Neither King nor this book's god would allow Stu to survive in the desert, only to die in a snow avalanche. And when they're finally almost to Boulder, after going out in dangerous conditions and choosing just not to wait out the winter, King prolongs it even further when Stu forgets to pick up more gas for their vehicle and they have to walk. I understand this is again paralleling Lord of the Rings, where the heroes must struggle to return home, but it may be one homage to Tolkien too many. There's only one question of importance that remains for the stand. Will the human race survive? 
Will new babies born be instantly infected with Captain Trips, or will they carry their parents' immunity? And will not just any baby survive, but will Franz? Even though he likely only has one immune parent, Fran's baby daddy, Jess, could have been immune, but we never see him again after Chapter 2, so who knows? Maybe he was playing slots in Vegas when it blew up? Now, this is a novel, and King has jumped geographically before. There's really no need for us to follow Stu back to Boulder so we can find the answer to this question. But that's how King's going to tell the story, and so we have dozens of pages of Stu and Tom before they finally reach Boulder again. But finally, Stu arrives and sees Franny's baby, sick with Captain Trips but armed with antibodies that do what no human before has done, successfully fight off the disease. Now this makes little sense to me, that immune parents would create immune babies? After all, we saw both Fran's parents die of Captain Trips, so if immunity was genetic, then where did Fran get it? Now I understand that recessive genes can appear in offspring, but it's really rare for two dark-haired parents to birth a red-headed child. Nonetheless, King wanted an optimistic ending to this story. He said in an interview, quote, the ending of the book is inherently optimistic in that it depicts a gradual reassertion of humane values as mankind picks itself out of the ashes and ultimately restores the moral and ecological balance. End quote. More, King wanted Stu and Tom to return to tell the people of Boulder what they saw. Well, Tom saw, possibly in a dream, the hand of God, but both witnessed the aftermath of the nuclear bomb. With this information, perhaps the people of Boulder will finally understand that the status quo should not be reestablished. But they seem well on their way, as their entire ruling body, save for Fran, was either killed or left on a suicide mission to walk to Vegas, the people of Boulder, logically, established a new committee. A police force was created, and they were even talking about giving them guns. Despite how King wants to send an anti-establishment, anti-technology message, he can't help but face the reality that people will rebuild the society they knew. And so, Stu and Fran check out of that society. Like Frodo... Stu and Fran find their adventures have changed them, and so it's time to set out to an undying land, or Maine. The next summer, about one year after the novel began, Fran starts to feel the calling of home. She, like the book's author in real life, wanted to leave Boulder and go back to their home state. This is a decision that makes little logical sense. Stu and Fran are parents of a newborn child, and they have another on the way. It's not only smart, but the responsible decision is to stay near healthcare facilities. Yet Fran makes an argument that they can't live their lives in fear, that they can read books and find the medicines they need at abandoned pharmacies. I think Fran is nuts, but Stu is whipped and agrees. The family will move to Maine. And the others in Boulder are inspired by this frontier philosophy and plan to leave Boulder as well, scattering not only across the country, but perhaps the world. And with this, King ends the novel with this bit of dialogue his final summation on the state of humans, technology, and the threats of biological and nuclear war. Quote, Looking down at Peter, he thought, maybe if we tell him what happened, he'll tell his own children. Warn them. Dear children, the toys are death. They're flash burns and radiation sickness and black, choking plague. These toys are dangerous. The devil in men's brains guided the hands of God when they were made. Don't play with these toys, dear children. Please, not ever. Not ever again. Please. Please learn the lesson. Let this empty world be your copybook. Franny, he said and turned her around so he could look into her eyes. What, Stuart? Do you think, do you think people ever learn anything? She opened her mouth to speak, hesitated, fell silent. The kerosene lamp flickered. Her eyes seemed very blue. I don't know, she said at last. She seemed unpleased with her answer. 
She struggled to say something more, to illuminate her first response, and could only say it again, I don't know. End quote. And thus ends the abridged version of The Stand, though in his original draft, King had an epilogue entitled The Circle Closes that was reinstated for the 1990 edition. In the 12 years between this book's original publication and the release of the uncut version, King had often mentioned this end chapter in interviews, saying that Flag turned up on the shores of Hawaii, ready to lead the people there anew. Now, in the final edition, this is only a couple pages that serve to tell the readers that evil never truly dies. As Flagg had appeared in other of King's books by 1990, I think it was also important to show that he didn't die in this novel. That his clothes had no body in them when the nuke went off made that clear enough to me, but this makes it overt. But in reading this 1990 edition, I took it more as Flagg had wound up in Africa versus Hawaii. King wrote, quote, They stared at him. He stared back. Things began to come. The six men became eight. The eight became a dozen. They all held spears. End quote. I think in the 1970s, Hawaii was more advanced than Spears, but maybe the flu sent them back to a more primitive time. Still, I prefer King's notion that this is in Hawaii. As I've said, this is an American tale, that Flag would show up on a different continent in a different nation takes away from that ever so slightly. I would like Flag to be an American evil, even if he has to flee to a faraway American state. I also do like King's reference to the Doors song The End that starts this epilogue. Quote, he awoke at dawn, he had his boots on. End quote. But once more, Flag is a man without a memory. He seems to not even know of his defeat in Vegas. He's a demon starting anew in a new land. And then the stand finally ends. And so ends my detailed analysis of the plot of King's The Stand. I hope you've enjoyed the detail into which I've gone, and I'm very grateful you've come with me this far on the journey. But what that leaves is the final summation of this novel. I've described what I think King has done poorly and where I think the author has excelled. But tomorrow, I hope you'll come back for the sixth and final installment in this review of The Stand, where I review this novel holistically, state which of the three releases I liked best, and also review the Marvel Comics adaptation of the work and look at possible future adaptations. So I do again hope you'll join me for this last part of the series, and I also hope you'll head to the forums at booksandnachos.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on The Stand. Do you like Flag's downfall? Does the hand of God work for you? Please come to booksandnachos.com. Click the forums link so I and other constant listeners can have this conversation. And until tomorrow's final installment, I shall fear no evil. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.